I've grown to believe more and more over the years that children have a lot to teach us. In fact, Jesus gives us profound spiritual wisdom right after the parable that we just read this morning. He says, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. So over the past few years, I've watched my own kids and I've learned a ton about what it means to be human, what it means to um, accept and be a part of the kingdom of God. I watched my son, Graham, who's four years old and my two-year-old daughter, Jude. And one thing I've observed over the years is that my son especially, and my daughter more and more as she grows, um, says to me all the time, and I mean capital A-L-L, all the time. He says this to me, he says, Dad, I watch me. Dad, I watch me. And my response usually is really simple. And I just say, I see you, buddy. That's awesome. I'm watching you. And what I've learned as I've considered this is that his question and the need that he's tapping into is one of the most fundamentally human needs that we all share. This need simply to be seen and to know that I see him and that he matters and that I love him and that I'm with him. All of us have that need as humans to be seen, to know that we matter, to know that we belong. And while my answer seems really simple and really obvious, like, I see you, buddy, I'm watching you, that's one of the most important things that any of us can hear as humans. I see you, I'm watching you, I'm with you. But you know that we don't always go about expressing our needs in the most healthy or appropriate ways. Um, for my own kids, and if you're a parent, you might be able to relate to me in this as well, that sometimes this need manifests itself in ways that aren't always so cute or so funny. Like when my son says, Dad, I watch me, or when my, when my daughter yesterday, she was saying, Graham, look at me, and she was wearing a really funny hat. When they're doing something like that, it's cute and heartwarming. But it's not always cute and heartwarming when they're involved with what the experts call, quote, unquote, attention-seeking behavior, right? When there's some sort of like temper tantrum or when they're hitting each other or when they're incessantly repeating a word or a phrase or a question, Attention-seeking isn't always bad, it's not always wrong, but we can chase after appropriate attention in all the wrong ways. And so that's essentially, at a base level, what this parable this morning is about. At its most basic level, this is a story about being seen, seen by others, seen by God, and how oftentimes we go about trying to be seen in all the wrong ways ways that ultimately alienate other people, distance others from us, and alienate even God. So I want to unpack this morning what's underneath that, and on the other hand, what sort of person draws the merciful gaze of God. So this is a parable with two characters. Um, scholars like to call parables like this one a contrast parable because the meaning or the message in the parable can be seen in the contrast between these two characters, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, the first character that we encounter, is ridiculous. He's a ridiculous caricature who's praying in this ostentatious, 
over-the-top, intentionally dramatic, out-of-control sort of way, making a scene, boasting about how awesome he is, trying to attract the admiration and attention of all the people around him, but ultimately instead distancing himself from all the people around him. Like, who would want to be friends with a guy like this? Am I right? But um, it's even more stinging when you look at the audience that Jesus is speaking this parable to. Now, Luke, who's writing this, who's recording this, intentionally alerts us to Jesus's audience in verse nine. So let's take a look. Verse nine is it's one of those verses that like you might just breeze by, um, but it's been in this text, the verse that's been really catching my heart, grabbing hold of my heart this week. So I don't wanna breeze by it. In verse nine, Luke writes, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and who looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. So Jesus' audience is probably Pharisees themselves. Some translations say, um, who looked down their noses on everyone else who, listen to this, treated others with contempt. Treated others with contempt. What horrible sounding people Like those are people that I don't want to grab coffee with or invite over for dinner. People who are confident in their own righteousness, looking down their noses on other people, treating others with contempt. Now those last four words, treated others with contempt, have especially been grabbing hold of my heart this week. And so I've noticed that happening and I'm like, why? What's what's going on here? And what I've come to realize is that I think these four words striking a chord so strongly in me this week because they so eerily describe the tone and the tenor that exists 2,000 years later in our own day. Treated others with contempt. And you all know if you've been a part of church culture before that the church is not exempt from this sort of treating others with contempt. People who are self-righteous, who think highly of themselves, who are confident and look down their noses on other people, treating others with contempt. And I know that a lot of you are even here at Christ City because you're trying to get away from that, right? Like you've experienced that before in your life and you're trying to escape that. So now you're at Christ City and, and I'm glad that you're here. But I've realized this week that we, Christ City Church, are not exempt from this either. Because you may be thinking, like, yes, I know exactly what you mean, Drew. Yes, I've totally experienced that. That's happened to me. Um, I've been looked down at. Those people, like, if they could just get it. Like if those people could just see the ways that they're treating others with contempt, if if they could just figure it out, if they could just nuance things the way that I nuance things, like, man, those people, I can't stand to be around those people, so I'm gonna escape and come to Christ City Church where it feels more safe. Do you see the irony in that? There's this new wave of Pharisaism where we're Pharisaical towards the Pharisee. Like we as... I don't know, enlightened people who can think in nuanced sorts of ways about whatever important cultural issue it might be. Like we're becoming much better and better at treating those who can't think or who don't think or who um, maybe we don't even experience thinking in those ways, treating those people with contempt. And I think that's the sort of Pharisaism that we're liable to here at Christ City Church. 
So what's underneath this? Really important for us to dig in and figure out what's underneath this. The Pharisee in the parable, this is how he talks. This is how he prays. Listen to this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even that tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. What's underneath this? Up in first glance, you might think like, man, arrogance, right? And self-centeredness and pride and an elevated self-worth. And that's definitely true. But I think there's something that's even deeper, something that I think all of us can relate with. I think ultimately what's underneath this Pharisaism is shame, shame. Shame is connected to that fundamental need that we all have as humans to be seen. All of us were raised and brought up by caregivers who no matter how awesome they seemed or how terrible they seemed, they're not perfect people, right? We were all raised and brought up by flawed caregivers, whether that's a parent or parents or grandparents or whatever it might be. And so we all have stories of like needing, rightfully needing and rightfully craving this connectedness with other people. But we all experienced in our own ways breaks in that connectedness that we so need as people, that we so rightfully crave as humans. And because that probably happened to you when you were a little kid, though it wasn't your fault, you took that on yourself. So for example, maybe, maybe when you were a toddler, your mom overreacted to a toddler tantrum. And it wasn't your fault. You were just doing what toddlers do. But all of a sudden, you took that on yourself. You took the blame on you. And you didn't have these sorts of words to put to that experience. But instead of thinking, man, I made a mistake here, you began to think, think, I am a mistake. You took that on yourself. And now maybe even you still live with that toxic shame. I am a mistake. Or maybe your dad was a workaholic and could never make it to your soccer games or whatever it is that you did. And so you took that on yourself. Man, I'm not worthy of attention. Or maybe your mom or dad or caregiver did not give you adequate affection that you as a child needed and longed for and even asked for in your own way as a kid. And so you took that on yourself. I'm not worth someone's affection. And maybe you still live with that in your own way. Like I'm not worth someone giving me praise or adoration. I'm, I'm not worthy. Toxic shame. We all have, we all carry our own shame narratives. I want to look at, I think this is really profound and helpful, the way that um, she's already been mentioned once here, so why not just mention her again? Um, Brene Brown um, defines shame. Um, she calls it shame, but I think semantics are important, so we're going to call it toxic shame for our purposes this morning. She's, she's um, renowned as a shame expert. 
So when we're thinking about this, she'd be a good person to listen to, I suppose. So here's, um, here's what Brene Brown writes and says about shame. I define toxic shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. You were created for connectedness. You were created to be seen, but instead you experienced breaks in connection with the people who mattered the most to you. So now there are all these sorts of things that happen in your life where you perceive that like connection with other people is threatened. And so you would feel what she describes rightfully as this intensely painful feeling, of toxic shame. I believe that that's what's happening here with the Pharisee. There are all these feelings, there are all these narratives that he's living with inside of him that are manifesting themselves outside of him in inappropriate, hurtful, harmful, unhealthy ways. These feelings happening inside of him are manifesting themselves outside of him in all of the wrong ways. So what he's doing is he's, he's crafting, he's constructing for himself a ladder, a ladder of religiosity, a ladder of achievement, a ladder of moralism that he can climb up where he can live at the top and look down his nose at everybody else. I fast twice a week. I give a lot of my income. I thank you that I'm not like these people who can't perform and achieve and accomplish the way that I can. Don't you see me trying to earn the admiration of others, trying to earn the admiration and the love even of God, but ultimately distancing himself, alienating. Who wants to be friends? Who wants to be in a relationship with this guy? So as we dig underneath what's going on for this guy, I found for me personally that I can empathize with him a lot more. Can you? Like upon first read, you're like, man, that sounds like a terrible person. But now as we unpack what might be happening for him, can you empathize more with him? I sure can. I sure can. In fact, I would say that I really, really relate to him. And I have all of these narratives that I believe, all of these false, false narratives that I believe. You're valuable, Drew, because of, of what you do. You're legitimate if these things are true about you. If they're not true, then you're not legitimate. You're loved, you're worthy of other people, people's acceptance and affection and adoration only if you can perform and achieve and do these things. So for me, um, in my younger days in ministry, um, I found myself thinking like, oh man, when I get married, then I'll be legitimate. Like then people will like accept me. Then I can be a pastor. Or after I got married, like, oh man, once I have kids, once I have kids, then, then I'll be legitimate right? Like then other people can accept me. Then I'll earn, I'll earn something. And then even if I, even after we had our first son, Graham, I found myself like living with this false narrative of like, but you know what? Pastors have, have, have large families. So like once we have another kid, once we have a second kid and we're a family of four, then I'll be legitimate. Like constructing for myself a ladder. Like if I do these things then I can be at the top and I'll be worthy 
then I can have people's affection. Then I can be accepted. I've had to combat. I've learned over the years to see those false narratives in my heart. And I've had to combat those things with, with true narratives. Like you matter because of who you are. Um, Sally Lloyd-Jones says um, in her children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, you're lovely because he loves you. You're lovely because, he's loved, because he loves you. Like you matter. We see you. You have worth. Whether or not you win this week, whether or not you're married or have this sort of family, like you matter, we see you, you're valuable. Toxic shame. Now there's another character in this story, tax collector. Upon first glance, it looks like the tax collector is the one that's wallowing in his shame. But let's look at the tax collector a little more deeply because I believe that there's a lot that he has to teach us. Jesus says at the end of the parable that it's this man. Surprisingly, it's the tax collector rather than the other man, rather than the Pharisee who goes home justified before God. So this tax collector has some things, some valuable things to teach us. Now, in Jesus's first century world, there, there wasn't any sort of contrast that could have been more stark than a Pharisee and a tax collector, okay? One scholar calls Pharisees the epitome of piety. Like these are holy men who have it together, who are winning at life. Like these are the people you wanna follow, the Pharisees. And on the other hand, the scholar calls tax collectors the sinner par excellence, the sinner par excellence. Tax collectors worked on behalf of Rome, collecting taxes in all these various Roman provinces like Judea. And tax collectors, their reputation was that they weren't wholesome people. They were wealthy, rich people who stole from the poor to make themselves rich and wealthy, wealthy, who showed no mercy, who didn't care about other people, cared about themselves and Rome. They were considered traitors. They were despised and rejected. They were considered by others in their day the scum of the earth. There's no greater contrast that Jesus could paint for us. This holy religious leader that people would have put on a pedestal, I wanna follow that guy. And then this other person that they despise, that they reject, they don't want anything to do with. But it's this man who goes home justified before the Lord. Look at how Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of the New Testament, the message describes the tax collector's posture and his prayer in verse 13. Meanwhile, the tax man slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up, said, God, give mercy. Forgive me, a sinner. Sounds, upon first read, like he's the one wallowing in shame. But this is the, this is the exemplar that Jesus asks us to follow. So, there are a lot of things that this tax collector has to teach us, but I wanna mention two for you this morning. The first one is the tax collector invites you, invites us to come to God with vulnerability, to come to God with vulnerability. There's an invitation. This tax collector models total and utter 
honesty and vulnerability before God. Like it's a little, it's a little like, if you can really imagine the story in your mind, in your heart, it's a little bit embarrassing. Like you, you feel a little bit embarrassed for this man because he's so overwhelmingly honest and vulnerable before God. Now there's an important, like a really important distinction that you have to see between the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee is living with loads and loads of toxic shame. Like we said, constructing for himself a ladder that he can climb where he can live at the top, look down his nose at other people, treating other people with contempt. The tax collector, on the other hand, seems to be flooded with shame, but I think what he's rightly expressing here is not shame, but guilt. And here's the distinction there. If you hear nothing else, like this is the thing that I want you to hear. Shame says this. Shame says, I am a mistake. That intensely painful feeling. I am a mistake. I am not worthy. And guilt says, and there's a subtle difference here. Guilt says, I made a mistake. So will you forgive me? Can we have relationship again? Do you see the distinction? Shame says, I am a mistake. Whereas guilt says, I made a mistake. The tax collector is expressing his guilt before God. He says, he says, God, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. And of course, for many of us at Christ City Church, this is a sort of phrase that deep down in your soul makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. And I've been reflecting on why that is, why, why, that's, why that's the reality, the story for many of us. And I think that it has to do with this, that many of you have experienced that sort of word or phrase, like you are a sinner. You've experienced that sort of thing in spiritually heavy-handed and shaming ways. There is shame associated with sin, but shame is first and foremost associated with guilt, okay? But we've flipped that. In many of the evangelical contexts that many of us have grown up in, we've talked about, we've heard about sin in heavy-handed, manipulative, shaming ways that care more about results than about loving you as a person who's a son or a daughter created in the image of God who has worth and value and who matters. Sin is missing the mark. It's walking off the path, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, the old hymn says. And it's true that we are sons and daughters, beautiful image bearers of the king. Yet it's also true that we are prone to mistakes. Do you see the difference there? Sin is first and foremost about guilt. And there's shame associated with it. But we've made it primarily about toxic shame. Not I make mistakes, but I am a mistake. And so the tax collector confesses with his whole heart, like, God, I've made mistakes. I've missed the mark. I've walked off the path. I'm a sinner. Will you have mercy on me? And I, what I want you to see, this is huge. And this, I believe, is so important for many of us to see this morning. We feel toxic shame when we think that there's something, when we perceive that there's something that's going to threaten connection with a person that we value, like God. But what happens for this tax collector 
is this, this heartfelt, vulnerable confession that he's a sinner, that he makes mistakes, that he's prone to wander, doesn't lead to loss of connection. It leads to deeper connection. It leads to deeper intimacy with God. I believe that it invites relationship with other people too, because this is something that's like, it's so leveling, right? Like, man, I would want to hang with this guy, right? Like we could be sinners, like in company of one another, pursuing after God together, right? Like vulnerability, being honest with all of yourself, with the beautiful parts of you and the ways that you miss the mark, the ways that you wander off the path. Being totally honest with all of yourself before God doesn't sever relationship. It leads to deeper relationship. Do you see that, that sweet invitation from God there? Look at, um, man, this is so beautiful. The end of the parable, Jesus sums it all up. Let me show you the way it says it in the NIV, which is what we read earlier this morning, um, this particular translation of the Bible. Luke 18, 14 says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. And now look at the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. He writes, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to simply be yourself, you will become more than yourself. If you're content to simply be yourself, no more performing, no more posturing, no more climbing this ladder so that you can achieve, so that you can reach this plate where you, place where you feel like you're finally worthy. No more, simply be yourself and you will become more than yourself. This invitation to deeper relationship with God. Now, the last thing that I think the tax collector has to teach us, the invitation here is, that you can come to God with your heart. So come to God with vulnerability. And then secondly, come to God with your heart. There's been something that struck me about the tax collector's prayer and his posture this week. And it's that it's really, really simple. Like, he's, he, like he doesn't have it all figured out, you know, he doesn't have the I's dotted and the T's crossed with all of his theology, all the ways that things are supposed to work. It's really relational. It's really simple. He comes to God with his heart. Now, we're all, as 21st century people, living in the Western world, whether you like it or not, we are all products. I know you hate hearing that you're a product of something, but it's true, we are. I mean, you're a product of this really significant movement that happened that shaped our culture called the Enlightenment. Now, one feature of the Enlightenment is that empiricism is a really important value, which means I wanna be able to reason it out. I wanna be able to understand it. Like, if you can prove it, then I'll buy into it. As post-Enlightenment people, like, we're very intellectually driven. Whether you consider yourself an intellectual or not, like, that's kind of our postures. We're intellectually driven people as 21st century Westerners. So we tend to connect with one another and even with God head first, like head to head. But the picture we get with his tax collector is not head to head. 
connecting intellectually, but heart to heart, like an embrace, like a hug. And I think that's really important for many of us who are in this room, because many of us are experiencing what's come to be coined like in our broader culture, this kind of like deconstruction season. Many of us are experiencing that. And there's a lot with deconstruction that's, that's true of your heart, like your understanding, your story, your experience, and all these things in your heart, but it's also a really intellectual thing. And what I find as I sit with some of you is you're just trying to connect head to head. And I think the invitation here with God is what would it look like for you to connect heart to heart? Like you don't have to have it all figured out, but you can simply come to God God, have mercy on me, I am a sinner. If you're feeling lonely, like start there, like God, I'm feeling really lonely with you. That feels so weird to say, I know. But come to God with your heart first. I'm not saying that intellect is bad or wrong and there's no place for that because I really love studying and doctrine and all those sorts of things, but come to God with your heart first and see what might happen. So we're gonna close this morning like we do every week, right after the sermon, as we continue to sing and worship together, we're going to um, take time for communion. Now in communion, you'll have the opportunity to practice both of these things. Come to God with vulnerability and come to God with your heart. Because one of our practices at communion, just like the church all around the world and throughout time, is to, before we come to the table, to confess, to say this corporate confession together, to confess our sin. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. So bring your full self, your glorious, beautiful self, and your sinful self before the Lord. But then we have an opportunity to connect heart to heart because communion is this mystery that no matter how intellectual and smart you are, Like we can't figure it out. Like the presence of Jesus in communion and getting to interact with like our savior who was crucified for us. You get to come to God with your heart. So come to God heart first, whether you can reason it all away or not, the invitation is for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful parable this story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I pray that you would wake us all up to these shame narratives that we live with and how we can relate to the Pharisee maybe more so than we think. And I pray that you would give us all freedom, that we would experience that we are lovely not because of all the ways we perform and all the accomplishments and achievements, but we are lovely because you love us. And Lord, um, would you help us to come to you this morning with our full self? And would you help us to come to you this morning with our heart? And would you meet us? In Christ's name we pray, amen.